7, verses 1 through 8, we'll read. Just follow along with me, please, as I read from the New King James Version of God's Word. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they, will, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And Father, as we begin this chapter, we pray, Lord, that you pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, that he would do his work of opening the eyes of our hearts that we may see you, God, more clearly, that we may see you, Lord Jesus, more clearly as our God, as our Lord, and as our Savior, to give us understanding of how these things apply to our lives and the truths that are contained therein. Lord, we thank you. We give you praise. Speak to our hearts. Now we pray, and might we hear, might we read, might we spend this time receiving from you for the purpose that we might bring to you all honor, all glory, and all praise in and through our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin this seventh chapter, it's good to remember where we've been. That, of course, would be the sixth chapter, right? But as we close the sixth chapter, we did see that Stephen is described as a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit and full of faith or grace and power. Uh, we saw earlier in the chapter, you know, the problem with the distribution of the, uh, of the goods, money, or whatever, the help that the uh, church was giving to the widows and, and the, the Hellen, uh, Hellenistic widows, those of, of the Greek culture were not receiving uh, as much as those who were uh, of Jewish, uh, of the Jewish culture there in Jerusalem. And so a, a problem arose. The uh, apostles gathered them together. They solved this problem with, with the selection and then the appointment of seven men to take on the task of distributing these things to all of the widows. Stephen being one of those seven, as I just read how he's described in this sixth chapter, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power, but he was accused of, of blasphemy. Uh, they, they even brought false witness, witnesses before uh, uh, the, the crowd to, to just kind of incite the crowd, they, 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 they laid hands on them, him, arrested him, brought him before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews here in Jerusalem. And this is where we end the sixth chapter, basically. There were false witnesses brought into this so-called court, if you will, as the, the ruling body was overseeing these things. The blas blasphemy was, uh, he was charged with blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the temple, and against the law. Th those were the charges that were wielded against him. 
And so as these charges were made, we see that the, the last verse in chapter 6 reads this way, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now one of the things I think that we, we, we can't miss here is when, as this is a description of him as well, his face as the face of an angel, what is it, do you think, that Stephen was going through in his own heart and his own mind? At this particular juncture, with these accusations that had been made against him, based on the fact that he had been sharing the gospel with his Jewish brethren in the synagogue. You know, there, 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 there were uh, uh, discussions held. There, there, was a, there was probably a debate that was held. And his accusers, or those who were against him, could not stand before the wisdom with which he spoke as he brought forth the word of God. Speaking of the things that he kind of outlines here in this, in, in this sermon here in this chapter. And I do think it's interesting that he used a Greek man, a Jewish man who was Greek. He was a Jewish Greek, basically is who he was. His name Stephen, a Jewish name of course. And he used him to point out some things that were, that were faulty in the sense of the way that the established people, the established religionists, you might say, among the Jews, the way that they were worshiping. There's something faulty about what they were doing, which brings to mind, that happens to us as well. We have to be careful. Even, even as Calvary Chapel, we've got to be careful because we can be moved to do things the Calvary Chapel way. Doesn't mean that we do the same things that Pastor Chuck did back in 1968. What it does mean is we follow his advice that we are in the Word of God, open to the movement of the Holy Spirit, and flow where the Holy Spirit is moving. That's what Pastor Chuck taught us to do. And that's what we must do. We must not become religious in the sense of following certain kinds of practices just because those things were handed down to us. You know, that, that, that's a part of what the Calvary Chapel movement is, is all about. And it's very much in line with the things that Stephen is talking about in this sermon. And Sermon gives a, a, a beautiful outline of the history of the Jews, beginning with Abraham here in these opening verses. He speaks about how Abraham was called by God. But he gives his defense in a very powerful way, which reminds us, of course, what Peter said. What Peter wrote, I should say, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It's a verse that we like to quote. But normally we quote the last part of it and not the whole verse. We, we like to say to, 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 be, to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And we forget about sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. We must sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. We must set him apart in our hearts. We, we must acknowledge that He is God. He is our God. He is the one that we follow. He is the one that gives us direction. He is the one who saves us. He is our Lord, our Savior, our God, and, and we must follow Him and bow to Him, sanctify Him, set Him apart in our hearts, and as we do that, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. doesn't mean with a lack of confidence, but, with a but it does mean with a lack of boastfulness, meekness and fear. Who are we that God has chosen us to speak his word? Who are we that God has chosen us to serve him? Who are we that God would use us for any purpose to accomplish uh, that, that he wants to accomplish. We're nobody. But he has chosen us. 
And so we need to be faithful to that calling. Stephen answers these accusations with this very accurate account of Israel's history. He deals with the book of Genesis, and he deals with portions of the book of Exodus as he speaks of Moses later on in this sermon. He speaks of Moses and Joseph both as types of Jesus in the sense of being deliverers used by God to deliver his own people. Bottom line, he is explaining why Jesus is the Messiah. And that basically needs to be what our own testimony is. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Even as Peter declared. Even as Peter declared with, uh, to, to, to Jesus. Remember in, in John chapter 6, we see Jesus saying some things that were hard to understand. That's the chapter in which he claims to be the bread of life. He also speaks to the people, his followers, the uh, disciples, that, that they must, as, they, as, as we follow after him, if we are going to have eternal life, we must partake of him, partake of his body and his blood. You know, so this brought some weird things. It's like, what is this, some kind of a cannibalistic cult or something, you know? They, they couldn't handle it. What's these, I mean, they're taking those things literally, and so many of them left. It's interesting to me that John 6.66, John 6.66 says many of his disciples, his disciples left. I find that interesting. But the following verses, verses 67 to 69, read this way. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so as we share the truth with people around us, let's be careful that we don't just say, you know, Jesus has given me such a great life. Jesus saved my marriage. He gave me a, a, a great job. And, and the things that, that he does for us as his people, his children, he does those things, and he does those things in and for us in different ways in different people's lives, depending on who we are and where we're co coming from and where we are even at that moment, the best way to help us. And he's always got in mind the best way to help us is for us to keep our eyes focused on him and to honor him and to worship him and to please him, to thank him, to remain dependent upon him. That's what he wants from us. But the point being... We can be so busy saying, yeah, God has a wonderful plan for your life that we forget the idea of salvation. The reason he came was to make us right with God, to remove our sins as he, being the Lamb of God, went to that cross, bore our sins on that cross, and as Psalm 103 says, separateth our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. That's where we've got to... to, to to center in on. Saying the other things is okay. But like Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. We need to speak of Jesus as the one who gives life. That's what we need, life. Why do we need that? Well, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.1, he says, you he made alive, speaking to the Ephesian church, who already had life, as members of the church. You he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. This causes me to think of that, that phrase that we all have heard, having to do with a, a penitentiary in which, in which are housed uh, those who are guilty of crimes that, in which they are going to receive the death penalty, and they're on, they're on death row. And then there comes a time when they're on death watch. Then there comes a time when they're going to be escorted from their cell to the place where the, 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 they're going to be executed. And as that takes place, 
what do the other prisoners say? Dead man walking. Dead man walking. When we leave this place, we go out into the culture. Going to go grab a bite to eat somewhere. There are a lot of dead people walking around in that restaurant. Because they have not placed their faith in Christ. Remaining dead in their trespasses and sins, right? Just like you and I were before we gave our hearts to Christ. We have physical life, but no spiritual life. And we are dead people walking, right? Well, that's what, that's what Paul des describes there. Now, as we speak of the need for life, that life comes only through Jesus, you know, the other things follow. The other things follow. The blessings follow. And God, our Father, helps us as his children. But first, we've got to become his children. As Jesus said in John 1.12 and 13. But as many as received him, actually this is John writing about Jesus, excuse me. John writing about Jesus. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now part of our culture, I mean our culture likes to say that we're all children of God simply because we're part of his creation. I get where they're coming from, but that's very misleading. Very misleading. If a person who's not received Christ believes he's a child of God, he's dead wrong. And I use the term dead wrong very purposefully. Thinks he has life, but does not. Because he's not acknowledged his, his or her own need for Christ. And verse 13 goes on to say, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Once that's established, we can go on. Well, as we look at this seventh chapter, and Stephen very accurately giving this history, just amazing his understanding and knowledge of the writings of Moses, you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he goes through, like I said, the, the book of uh, uh, Genesis as he speaks about uh, uh, Abraham uh, and also the patriarchs in verses 9 through 16. Uh, then in verses uh, 17 and forward, we see he speaks about Joseph, who is also included in the book of Genesis, starting with chapter 39 through basically the, the end of Genesis, and then he brings up Moses there in the, that passage, beginning of verse 17. He moves into Exodus and the, the, the things that took place there. So we're going to just kind of read through, making a few comments, and the bulk of what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, believe it or not, I have not hit yet. It's going to be toward the end of the sermon. So we see him speaking about Abraham, and, and, and one thing I want, I want to give your attention to or bring your attention to is the way that he addresses the Sanhedrin. He says, brethren and fathers, brethren and fathers. He acknowledges that he is one of them. They are brethren, but he also includes fathers, which is a, a, a term of great respect, a term in which he, he acknowledges that you, as the leaders of our faith, that's the purpose of the Sanhedrin, Lead us in that faith, and you are as one of my spiritual fathers. That's basically what he's saying there. So giving utmo utmost respect while including himself as, as a part of, of who they are. We're, we're all in this together. But one of the things that we have to see, too, even from the perspective of the Sanhedrin, these Jewish men who were in this leadership position, looking at this young Greek guy, Jewish, yes, and hearing from him here in this chapter, it's like you can just kind of see them, you know, kind of getting on their high horse and looking down, down at, at him and saying, who are you to be telling us these things, right? You know, it's like you're, you're, you're just a, you know, I mean, yeah, you're a Jewish brother, but, you know, you have no right to be telling us these things. 
We're the ones that know, not you. You know that kind of attitude? You can see that as a part of it. Well, he speaks of Abraham, the way that God called him out. We, we see in verse 5 how, he, how God promised, even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give this land to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. He speaks of, in verse 7, the, the, the nation to whom they will be in bondage. They're going to be in, in bondage, as we see in verse 6, for 400 years to a particular nation. Of course, that takes place uh, when after Joseph brings his family to Egypt to save them from the famine, and they are taken to this, this land in, in southern Egypt called Goshen, or Goshen, I should say, the land of Goshen, where it, it's, it's very fertile, and they thrive there. And over that 400-year period of time, they grow from a nation of 75 people to probably a million and a half people while they're there in that 400-year period of time. And then Moses is called to bring them out. After they are um, oppressed by a king who did not know Joseph or anything about him. But they were, as we see in Genesis, the, the Pharaoh actually feared them. The, the Egyptians feared the Jews because they grew to be such a large number of people. You know, so th that, that's, that's basically where we're coming from in verses uh, 1 through 16. Let's go ahead and, and, and... Oh, another point I want to make is that after all this, verse 7, God says that after I judge them, you're going to come and serve me here in this place as he spoke to Abraham and then he gave them the covenant of circumcision, which is basically a covenant in which the people of God are identified as the people of God. That's what the circumcision is all about, identifying his people as his people. Now, in verses uh, 9 to 16, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Jesus and, excuse me, sold Joseph, excuse me, take that off the tape, okay? Um, Look, I'm, 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 that's old time, right? Take it off the tape. We're not using any tape. It's all digital. Take that off of the digit. Anyway, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And, and here, I mean, that's just a beautiful... Those two verses are just beautiful, the way that we see God being described as, as the deliverer. And when we suffer problems in our world, God being with us walks through them with us, having some kind of purpose beyond, which we have no idea what that purpose might be. And Joseph certainly didn't know when he was sitting in prison. You know, he's talking to the butcher and the baker and saying, remember me, remember me, tell, tell Pharaoh about me, you know, I can, I can interpret dreams, I mean, all this stuff, you know, and says, like, nothing for a period of time. But when the time was right, it happened. We're going to see that phrase in just a moment. Verse 11, now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, because of his son's plan, Joseph's plan as, as the prime minister of Egypt, basically. He sent out our fathers first. He continues to speak of, uh, of the patriarchs as our fathers. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. No, so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hemor, the father of Shechem. We see that at the end of the book of Genesis. Verse 17, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, that 400-year period of time, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, 
Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. These stories we know very well, right out of the book of Exodus. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you wrong one another? Well, that's a good thing that we ought to be saying to each other within the church, right? That very thing. We are, we are brethren. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do we wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want me to... Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, as Moses understood that it was becoming common knowledge, what happened, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Notice how angel of the Lord, angel is capitalized. This is, this is viewed as a visitation of Christ himself. That voice coming out of that, that bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am, now notice, the angel of the Lord saying, I am the God of your fathers. And not just a created angel. It's God himself in the person of Christ, the second person of the Godhead. He's the one that was in that bush speaking. A messenger. The word is Messenger. Both in the Greek and Hebrew, it's messenger. So it wasn't God the Father himself. It was a messenger that he sent. It was his son who spoke from the bush. The messenger of the Lord. The messenger of Yahweh. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Trembling at the voice of of God. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, the people of God rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And so this description of what took place in the wilderness as Moses brought them out. But notice in verse 17, again, when the time of the promise drew near. There are times that God makes promises that, you know, we, we want the promise to happen now. God, you said. I think we need to inform him of that. We need to let him know what he said. But we lack patience. But God's got work to do. He has hearts to change and hearts to form. And, and I, I want to encourage you, specifically in the area of our work in being a witness to loved ones who don't yet know Christ. I have a very high level of confidence that God is going to bring salvation to every one of my grandchildren. Some of them aren't following him yet. I want it to happen today. You know what I mean? Now you guys know what I mean. But God's got some work to do. And whatever work that is, I don't know. God knows the heart's of every one of us in every last detail 
and knows why our hearts are the way that they are. Primarily, it's because of our own sinful nature, right? But the things that have happened to us while in this world, which have, which have provoked that sinful nature to respond a particular way, which have caused our hearts to perhaps wander from him, harden toward him, rebel against him, whatever we want to say, you know, and he knows. And he knows the work that has to be done to bring a softening, to, re to prepare our hearts to be fertile soil, to receive the truth of his word. So even as we don't see things happening, things are happening. We just don't see them yet. Right? Right? Come on, you guys, be with me here. Yeah, I mean, we just don't see them yet. I can't say that I know that God has said in his word that all of my grandchildren will be saved. But I know the conviction that he's placed in my heart. I do know what the word of God has to say about he loves my grandchildren more than I do. I know what he has to say about the reality of his desire to bring them to salvation. And I am praying according to his desire. According to this word desire being really connected to the idea of God's will, of his will. You know, it, it really is connected with that. And so it's like I'm taking him at his word. And because I am who I am, because my wife is who she is, and other members of the family are who they are, and we are praying, and some of you guys are praying as well. I've talked about my grandchildren. Some of you do pray for them from time to time. Because we are praying, God has brought us to this place of prayer. He didn't place those people in, in my family and under the influence of the prayers of this church for nothing. So he's working. He's working. And I may not see it happen while I'm still in this world. But I believe it's going to happen. So he's got his purposes. He's got his plans. Now, verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. That's out of Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses prophesies that another prophet will be raised up by the Lord who will be like Moses. He's speaking of Jesus the Messiah. Him you shall hear. Had the men in the ruling body of the Jews heard? No. There were a few. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, we know. Others, perhaps. But they were afraid to make their faith in Jesus, their belief that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, known because of the backlash that they had received from this ruling body. But... As a whole, they had not responded. Verse 38, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. The living oracles. The word of God is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? The living oracles. That's not just the New Testament word. It's the entire word of God. Whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. And as we see, Egypt is a type of this world and is a type of bondage and is a type of sin. It's speaking of the reality how people can turn toward God, but because of certain things that may happen in our lives or around us or whatever that we don't like, that we're, I mean, then we turn back toward the world. This could be somebody who never actually got saved, but moving in that direction that the Lord put a stop, or excuse me, that the, our enemy, that our adversary put a stop to it by interjecting his thing in that person's life, and that person just kind of turns away, goes back to the world. 
reminds me of what Paul wrote in, in regard to, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name now. He went back to the world at the end of Philippians. Anyway, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, but he speaks about, at the end of, the end of uh, I'm sorry, at the end of Second Timothy. I got to go there and make, make sure I get his name. I'm sorry. You just have to. I should be on the tip of my tongue. If any of you know it, I heard a lot of voices without hearing any clarity. What's that? Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present age. Yes. Thank you. Demas. But Demas had been serving alongside of Paul, and because of his love for the world, left. Was he a person who had been saved and lost his salvation? Was he a person who was serving without really being saved? Uh, was he just on a backslide? Was he going to come back to, to the church, to, to the Lord later? We don't know any of those, the answer to any of those questions. We don't. We simply don't. But what Paul saw was, in his love for this world, he left ministry and is back in the world. Basically, that, that's what he's saying there. So that, that does happen to us, obviously. Back to Egypt. In verse 40, saying to Aaron, this is the people, make us gods to go before us as for, as for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. Because he was up on the, on the mountain uh, receiving the law, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. He, he, he was fasting the entire time, a type of Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. They didn't know what to become of him. They, they were very impatient. Very impatient. And so they felt, well, God's not in this. Let's go back and serve some gods that we can see, that we can touch. So they, so they made a calf in those days, verse 41. Offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Boy, there's a, a word of warning to us about rejoicing in our own works. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and, and, and the star of your god, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Beyond Babylon. So this is, this is speaking of how Babylon itself was going to, to be used by God to bring the people of Israel out of this promised land uh, even before he had given them the promised land, <laughs> even before they entered in. Hundreds of years. This would have been something like 800 years difference in time. Well, verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Mo uh, Moses to make it according to the pattern that he, had been, that, that he had seen. So we know that God had given Moses a vision of the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle and everything that was in this tabernacle, and all the tables and instruments and bowls and everything. Uh, and... and According to that pattern, he was to, to construct everything. That, that's what we see taking place in, in Exodus. And then, of course, in Leviticus. We see that happening. Which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house, built God a house. Now look at this, guys. Now remember that the charge, the accusation was blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the temple, and against the law, right? And one of the things that we see here is that, that the accusation centered on, even as he spoke about God and Moses, but the, 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 the Jewish leaders are focusing on what God and Moses brought them, the law and the temple. Those are the physical things that they saw. These were the religious things 
that God gave to them that they began to take as more, um, more precious and more sacred than God himself. That's a problem with blessings, and that's a problem with, with some kind of religious form, you know, that it becomes something that is more important than the one who gave it to us. That's what we see working here. Now, notice what Stephen says. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says here, Isaiah, verse 49, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? And, and then uh, verse uh, 50 uh, out of uh, Psalm 105 or 102, Has my hand not made all these things? We see Stephen bringing into question the importance of the temple. That the Jewish people held in such high regard. It reminds us of what Jesus spoke to his own disciples as they were leaving the temple one day. We, we see this in, in Matthew and Luke. They're leaving the temple, and this is Jesus' last week of, 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 of uh, life here on this earth before he was crucified. You know, oh, look at the temple, look at all these great buildings, blah, blah, all this stuff. And Jesus said, you know, paraphrasing, you take this too seriously. All this, you're going to lose all this. It's going to be torn down. You're not a stone's going to be left upon another. Then what will you have? You know, if we're just, if that's all we have, then we're going to be left with nothing because we really don't have God because we only have those things, those forms of worship, the, the, the temple, or even the law rather than God himself. That's why relationship is such an important aspect of all this. As we see these things, guys, some, some things for us to understand and to note. As Stephen centers in on the temple, he questions the importance of it. Remember, in heaven is a tabernacle. And the tabernacle and everything in it was given to Moses to basically, uh, as a pattern, to make for the worship of his people. Um, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, as the Jewish leaders are, are, are pressing Jesus, he says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. He's speaking of himself. One greater than the temple. And I believe one of the reasons that God used the Romans to destroy the temple is to move the people of God, the Jewish people, to look to him, to worship him, to have a relationship with him, rather than having the temple. But and there, there are people there who still want to see the temple rebuilt, and it will be rebuilt. And the sacrificial systems are going to be restored. And the, the Jewish people are going to have their form of worship again, which, is, which becomes very, very empty. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, you guys know this. Paul the Apostle writes, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And in 6.19 of the same book, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You see, part of what, what Stephen is dealing with here is the idea that what God really wants, he doesn't want us to be stationary within a temple. He wants to be moving about. He wants, to have us, he wants us to have freedom. And that can be a problem with us today as a church, wanting to make sure that we have a church building. And we need a place to meet in. There's nothing wrong with, with having a church building and, and owning a church building. Nothing wrong with that at all. But let's not let it become such a great symbol of, of worship that it becomes the thing that we worship. The idea of a tabernacle and the idea of the fact that we, you and I, corporately as the church and individually as followers of Jesus, we are the temple 
of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God, not a building. And this building that we're in right now is nothing more than, a, than, a, than, than like a warehouse to house the people of God as we come together to meet. That's all it is. So when we say we're going to go to church, we're not talking about the building. Often, I mean, because of the lo location, we, we, you know, that's in our mind. But I'm going to church means I'm going to gather with the people of church and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to go to church. And by the way, we can have church anywhere, not in any one particular building. We have church at home and we have devotion with our families. Or even on an individual basis, having church on the job is during the break, you've got your Bible open and you're reading it, you're communing with the Lord through, the, through reading the scriptures. You know what I mean? I mean, that's something that we have to have in our hearts and minds. We are the temple of God. And look at this. Even in heaven, there's going to be no temple. In the New Jerusalem, there will be no temple. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. Then I, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, he's not saying that the city is a bride, but it's prepared like a bride. It's just so, so beautiful and, 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 and lovely. It's, just, it's like a bride prepared for her wedding, but that's how the New Jerusalem is going to look. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That, that, that's a fulfillment of the, sec of, of, the, of the new covenant out of Jeremiah 33. Uh, Jeremiah 31, excuse me. And then in that same chapter, Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God's not interested in buildings. He's interested in giving us life, which we find only in him, and we must dwell in him. It's the idea of abiding with Christ, remaining there, making him our dwelling place, and yet he has made us his dwelling place while we are here. The indication seems to be through the word that while we're here in this, word, in this world, we need his presence in our lives. We need to be indwelt by him. We need his help. We need his power. Once we get to heaven, we're not going to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit because God is just simply going to be with us. He's going to be the temple in which we dwell, not him dwelling in us. He is going to be that light. There's going to be no sun, no need for light because the, the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ provides the light, and there's not going to be any night any longer. No darkness whatsoever in any way. Physical, moral, spiritual, whatever. No darkness. And so that's the idea of the temple. And I think that's a huge point that Peter, that, that I'm, excuse me, that Stephen is making here that we can miss. But I don't believe that these Jewish leaders are missing it. It's like this temple is irrelevant. In a very real, way, very real way, that's what he's saying to them. And he's looking at scriptures that show that with the idea of the tabernacle. Then verse 51, look at this. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He just sealed his execution right there. I think he knew because he understood where he was going to go as he addressed the Sanhedrin. He knew, he knew he was going to be going into the presence of God at any moment. Don't you, don't you guys think he knew that? I think he did. That's why he had a face like, that looked like the face of an angel. I mean, the idea of the peace of God's presence, the idea that he is present, God is present with him even at that moment, and he's fine with it. What an example for us to not be concerned about the backlash of people in the world against us being a witness for, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing where we're going. 
knowing where we're going. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Boy, this idea of the obstinacy that's, uh, that's a part of this. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. This, this re the rebellion, the stiff neck, the uncircumcised. I mean, the stiff neck, you know, you know what that means like? You know, it's like, have, ever, have you guys ever been a part of a tug of war? Have you watched a tug of war and seen the, the, the positions, the, the, the body language? It's like, you know, you got that rope and you're going, mm, and you got another way to put it, your heels are dug in. That, that's an English term that means basically the same way. But it's like, your neck is very stiff as you're resisting the opposition. S speaking of stiff neck, you are working against God, trying to pull him your way rather than submitting to his way. That's the idea. That, uh, I, when, you see, when you see the word stiff neck, think of that. I think it's a very good picture of what is represented by that word. And we can very well be stiff necked as believers, obviously. We can do that. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You know, as, as, as the prophet Samuel approached um, King Saul, after he had been commanded in 1 Samuel 14 and 15 to go to Amalek and destroy all the people, to destroy the city, every person, man, woman, and child, every animal, totally destroy it, right? That's what he told him to do. But he didn't do that. He came back with the king. He came back with the best of the animals to sacrifice to God. That's not what God told him to do. He had in his own mind what would be better than what God said to do. And it was the ways of man, not the ways of God. And Samuel, when he came to Saul, he, he said this in 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? It's like God is saying, it, it is true that I, I gave the word that, that, that speaks about bringing sacrifices and offerings to me. But do you think for a moment that that that's is as important to me as just simple obedience? Submitting to my authority in your life? Honoring me as God and as Lord of your life? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Wow. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. The Lord would not have a king who's in rebellion against the true king. Against the true king. And uncircumcised in heart and ears, because circumcision was given as a sign of identification, as we noted already, Stephen basically was telling them, you are not God's people at all. You think you are. You've got the law, but you don't obey it. You're rebellious. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You don't hear what God is saying. 1 Corinthians 7.19 says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And in Romans 2, verse 25 to 29, for circumcision is indeed the is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Obviously, he's writing for the benefit of, of Jewish followers of Christ. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision, meaning he's identified as a person of God? So we are identified by the people of God in the way that we follow the law. What are the most... What are the greatest commandments? Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus said in John uh, 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. All will know you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. That's the identification as God's people. And will not the physically uncircumcised, verse 27 there in Romans 2, uh, be, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And we see in that passage that, that Paul calls all of us who are receivers of the life of God. We've benefited from the life of God. We have his life within us. We are born again. We are children of Abraham. Not even those who can trace their lineage directly back to Abraham. If they're not following the law, they are not. It's of the heart. It's of the heart. In verse 52 which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one or the righteous one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. So now they have become, as he already noted, just like their fathers. Now verse 54, we see here the execution of Stephen as the first Christian martyr here in Acts chapter 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That means that they were, that they were basically furious at what they heard. They, they, they had been convicted in their spirit. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They all just went, ah, and running at him. They, they didn't want to hear what he said anymore. They just wanted to... to the full force of their wrath to come upon him. And then see what take, took, takes place. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They couldn't stone him in the city. It had to be outside of the city where the execution would take place. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Our introduction to Saul of Tarsus, who became, of course, the apostle Paul. Interesting that he's here for this. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then verse 60, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He basically was rocked asleep. Not, not to make light. Not to make light of something very serious. But you know, you know how we'll say, you know, don't, don't kill the messenger. That's what people do because we don't like the message. It doesn't matter if you're the originator of the message or not. You know, I don't like what you're saying. Stop it and we'll kill you if need be. That has been going on in the world for thousands and thousands of years. And it will continue until the time of, of Christ in his own kingdom when we come. We see here the beautiful example of a man who knew the word of God, a man who followed the word of God, not afraid to speak the word of God, even knowing what the result would be as he spoke to a particular group of men spoke the truth to them. He basically told them, your religious practices, even your temple, that God, that, that, that um, 
that, that you worship in is not the main thing. God himself is the main thing. Guys, might we make sure that we keep God himself as the main thing? And yes, we worship him, but, but, but we, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. As Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, worship in spirit and in truth. doesn't matter where we worship. And in that passage in John 4, Jesus makes that clear. He says, yeah, you guys worship at the Mount Gerizim. We worship here on, 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 at the temple. But there's going to come a time where it doesn't matter because where it is because we must worship in spirit and in truth. Might we do that? Might we do that? Not holding to religious forms, but holding and clinging to Jesus as our God, as our Lord, and as our Savior. Following Him as such. Understanding that He is the fulfillment of all the law even as he speaks to us in regard to the most important law, as I stated earlier, is loving God first and secondly, loving people. Those, those are the greatest laws. And if we do that, Jesus said, we will fulfill all the law. If we love him, love people, we don't have to look at all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. We will automatically fulfill them because we are loving and honoring God with our lives and under the context and under the umbrella of our love for him, we're loving people. And in that, we're pleasing him. And all the law will be fulfilled in our lives as we do so. Let's not look to the law. Let's not look to a place. Let's look to Jesus. Let's look to him. He is your God. He is your Savior. He is your life. Look to him. And Jesus, we do pray that you'd have your way in our hearts this morning. Lord, that you would do your work in us, Lord, even as you have spoken to us through this incredible chapter. Thank you for this young man, Stephen, the way he stood up to those who were, who were just locked into tradition and locked into religion and locked into places and locked into laws that it's not that they didn't matter anymore, but they're just simply a, 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 not the substance, but a shadow of the things to come, as Hebrew speaks of Jesus, a shadow. Lord, might we look to you, Lord Jesus, our God, our Lord, our Savior, our protector, our overcomer, the one who shows us what love is, even as we have received your love as Paul would write to the Romans, that, that you, God, have demonstrated your love toward us and that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you. And I pray for any in this room, even now, who have perhaps not yet bowed their own knee to you, Jesus, to acknowledge you for who you are. We get locked into these traditions and the, the religious things and God, might we never be removed from you. Doing things that may appear religious, but because we love you and we love people. You're not simply what the church is supposed to do. It's what we do as we follow you. And so, God, have your way. If there's anyone here who's not yet given their heart to, to the Lord, Lord Jesus, would you touch that heart even now? And I would ask that if that would describe you right now while you're here, would you raise your hand? I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you've been locked into religious experience or, or, or maybe you've even hesitated from coming to a church or, or getting involved with the church because you see the religious experiences and, 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 and you see what comes with it. It may not be a good thing. It's about Jesus and receiving his life. Anyone anyone who does not yet have the life of Christ in you and you want it, I'd love to pray for you. Well, Father, there are no hands raised this morning, and we just take that to mean that everyone here 
has that life, has your life in us. Thank you for that. But Lord, if perhaps there's someone just still um, wrestling in their own hearts with this, I pray that you'll continue to speak to their hearts your words of life and your love as expressed on that cross. As Lord Jesus, you died to take their sins away. And so, Father, I pray for them. And for all of us here, Lord, might we live our lives in such a way that you live through us, Lord, that we love you and through your love are loving each other. And God, that you would be glorified in it all. We love you, Jesus, and ask it all in your precious name. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys.